everyone. I'm very, very glad to be here. Okay, so uh, that's not a good sign. So in, in, uh, in our scripture reading this morning, one of my favorite incidences is where Eutychus falls out the window and dies. And what I like about that is if you fell out a window, Eutychus too, right? <laughs> it's my one, my one Bible joke, actually. I actually have more than one, but I'll spare you the rest of them. Well, this morning, uh, I have the privilege of talking to you about something that's been on my heart a lot lately, and that is the topic of heaven. And uh, I was asked to speak at a, at a disciple now, you know, D-Now. I'm sure you guys have D-Now. And um, I spoke at the D-Now on the subject of heaven. There was, that was sort of the whole theme of the weekend, but it was my task to give an overview of heaven. And that's kind of a big task, and so I tried to narrow it down to a couple of passages, and then I really focused in on Revelation 21 and 22, where it's really probably the longest biblical description of what our eternal state will be like. And really, it was so soul-stirring and so exciting and so thoroughly, I guess, enriching to my own life, I thought I'd want to share it with you guys. So I went back to my notes, I studied some more, and... um, I think I have something that will just be soul-encouraging truth to us this morning. And uh, I'm actually something of an expert on the subject of heaven, not least of which because I've been to a Bucky's flagship store, which is like, which is like the thing just before you get to heaven. It's like the mud room, you know, just before the pearly gates. And so those bathrooms, they are clean and they are, I guess, heavenly is the only word I can think of. And so, so... What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to expel some of the some of the, the Christian mythology that we have about heaven. I think some of the ideas that we have, like Donald Duck floating on clouds with harps and things like that, you know, they're just they're not helpful and they're not true according to the Bible. And so I want us to focus on this passage today, get some clarity, and so that our hearts will be encouraged as we study the scriptures and as we learn what our eternal destiny will be like. And so. Let's look at Revelation 21, starting in verse 1 together. So Revelation 21, starting verse 1, and we're going to read through this, and then uh, we're going to look at it more closely together. The apostle writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless... 
the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates. At the gates were twelve angels, and on the gates were the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. They were inscribed. On the, on the east, three, three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod at 12,000 stadia. That's 1,400 miles, by the way. Its length and its width and height are all equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. It's good to know, just in case you were wondering. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth christophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were the twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the city, through the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this amazing passage of scripture that acts as a anchor for our souls in a troubling and tumultuous world. God, we thank you that you are making all things new. You will wipe away every tear from every eye. You will take away all pain and all suffering, and you will bring about a glorious future. God, we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at a few points this morning. I think 
It's in your bulletin there. We're going to be looking at a few questions, and we're going to answer them as we go along. So we're going to look at why study heaven, what is heaven, what is heaven like, and how do we get to heaven? All right? So why study it, what is it, what's it like, and how do we get there? So let's jump right in. Why study heaven? Why study this subject? Well, 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, set your hope fully on this glorious future that is ahead of us. He says, we need to focus on heaven fully. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is because our hope, our hope determines our destiny. Okay, our hope determines our life direction. We need to study heaven because hope determines the entire course of our lives. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, allow me to explain. I'm so glad you asked. Okay, first of all, we start off with a big problem, okay? The English word hope, which is always translated from the Greek and Hebrew words for hope, is a really weak word, okay? Our English word for hope is really misleading whenever we read the Bible. It doesn't really signify the biblical concept of hope. For example, if I said to you, hey, are you, are you sure? Are you sure that's going to happen? Are you sure the Texans are going to win, right? And you say, uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure, but, but, but I hope that it'll happen, right? I hope that they'll win. You see, what does the English word hope usually mean? Uncertainty, right? It usually means, I, I don't know it's going to happen, but I really hope it's going to happen. Are you certain? No, I hope. But that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible means when it talks about hope. The English word hope, if the English word hope means uncertainty, that's completely the opposite of what the biblical world means. Okay? So every time you see that English word hope in your Bible, don't think of what you normally think of because that's taking you in a wrong direction. Here's what hope means. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the certainty of things not seen. Biblical hope is life-shaping certainty about the future. That's what biblical hope is. Or put it another way, biblical hope is living now in a way that is completely changed because of what you know will happen in the future, what you are certain will happen in the future. That's hope, being certain about the future. It's something that's not here yet, but it's so certain you're affected by it now. And the best illustration I know of of this concept is this. Okay, take two people and put them in identical rooms, same temperature, same humidity, and the same task to do all day, every day, and some menial task, screwing a widget on a wadget, okay? You guys know what that is, right? A widget and a wadget, okay? They're screwing part A onto part B all day long, and the room's uncomfortable, it's hot, it's humid, there's people, like, throwing things at them, you know, and they have to do it over and over again, 10 hours a day for a full year, okay? The same circumstances, same setting, same conditions, but you tell the person in the first room, hey, 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 at the end of this year, you're going to get $10,000. But then you tell the person in the other room, hey, at the end of this year, you're going to get $10 billion. Same job, right? Actually, it's not the same job now, is it? Right? Because how you do your job and how you process your job depends upon what you believe your future is. Right? So the person in the first room is saying to the, the person in the second room at the water cooler, 
is horrible. This is so tedious. This is so boring. This is unbearable. I, I think I'm going to quit. I'm done. I mean, after today, I'm going to clock out. I'm just going to throw down my keys. I'm out of here. I mean, don't, don't, don't you think this is tedious and unbearable? And the second person says, no, no, it's, not, it's actually not bad at all. Actually, in fact, I mean, this is the best job I've ever had. This is wonderful. These widgets and watchets are like amazing, you know. Now, now why is that? Why is that? Now, their identi- identical circumstances are being processed in completely different ways because they have two different futures that they're believing in. Okay, here's the point. You and I are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. Okay, we are controlled now. Okay, we're controlled how we live now by what we think will happen later, by our understanding of what our ultimate future is. So we need to talk about heaven because that is our ultimate inheritance. That is our ultimate future state. And we will live now differently because of what we believe about the future. It's our final destination. And what we believe about that will make all the difference in our lives today. So we need to have our hope fixed in our minds. We need to have this hope fixed in our minds if we're going to make it through life. Because guess what? Life is hard. It's not easy. Children have to get taken to emergency rooms, right, in the middle of the night. People die. People get cancer. Life is, is really hard, and we need an anchor for our souls. That's why we need to study heaven. But what is it? What is heaven? That's my second point. What is heaven? Now, this, this can be a little bit confusing sometimes because the word heaven is used in a couple different ways in the Bible. It can refer to, like, the sky above us, right, the heavens. And then it can refer to outer space, okay, but that's kind of somewhat obvious when you read those occurrences of the word. But the other use of the word heaven is the more relevant to us this morning. And heaven refers to where God is specially present. Okay, that's what heaven is, ultimately. Heaven is where God is specially present. God, heaven is where God lives. Heaven is the present abode and dwelling place of God. Okay, now... Heaven is where God lives in distinction from earth where we live, okay? So heaven is the realm where God dwells that is parallel to and exists alongside the created world in which we live, okay? God dwells in heaven, we dwell on earth. But here's something you may not have thought of before, and and that is this. Throughout the Bible, these two realms, heaven and earth, overlap and interlock, okay? at certain times and certain places. They overlap and interlock. There are times where heaven and earth meet. In fact, one of the major driving themes of the whole Bible is heaven and earth finally coming together, the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of man being the same. That's exactly what we just read in Revelation 21. The dwelling of God is among men, right? Now, and one of the goals of the Bible is God dwelling with his people, heaven coming to earth. That's where the Bible begins. Think about this. Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden wasn't just a really nice garden with big fruit and stuff like that. God was there, right? God walked with them in the cool of the day. They lived in the unmediated presence of God. That was like heaven, okay? And, And when Adam and Eve sinned, they were forced out of Eden, out of not just a really beautiful garden with big, nice fruit and things like that. They were forced out of God's presence, right? That was the worst thing about leaving Eden, okay? And so they were forced out of, out of God's presence, out of heaven, 
so to speak. And the whole rest of the Bible is about getting back into the presence of God. Man getting back into Eden, back into heaven, back into God's presence. Now think about it with me, okay? I want you to actually think about this, okay? After the Garden of Eden, where God was specially present in the Old Testament, where else in, within the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, where was a place where God specially dwelled? Where was a place where heaven and earth met in the Old Testament? The temple, right? Yeah, the temple and the tabernacle, right? And specifically, if you go past all the veils and the walls and things like that, you got to that one place where that cube was, right? That cube, that was, what, what was that called? The Holy of Holies. Oh, the Holy of Holies, right? I heard it over there. Yeah, the Holy of Holies was that little cube. And that's where, like, God's presence, like, especially was. It was a perfect cube. Now, in the book of Revelation, the Holy City is a big cube, right? Is that a coincidence? Maybe, probably, yeah, definitely. Okay. Now, yeah, God specially dwelled in the tabernacle and in the temple, okay? Especially in the Holy of Holies. The temple was God's presence among his people. It's where heaven and earth met. And if you think about this, that one day of the year when the high priest walked into, went beyond the veil, into the Holy of Holies, he was walking into heaven itself. He was walking into God's presence and offering up the sacrifice for the people. And he had the 12 tribes uh, written on his chest, right? On his, he was bringing the whole people into the presence of God, right? Foreshadowing our ultimate high priest who has our names written on his heart. I mean, isn't that just really cool how that works? And so, but he walked right into God's presence. That's why it was so horrifying, okay? God was presence among his people in the Old Testament, in the temple, but it was a mediated presence, okay? There were all sorts of chambers and veils between the people and God because God's presence is dangerous to sinful people, right? The high priest had to go through all kinds of purification rituals just to make it there. Only the high priest could enter once a year. So let's fast forward. Think with me again. Where in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, specifically in the Gospels, where was the place where God was specially present, where heaven and earth met? Transfiguration, Jesus at the cross. Yeah, it was actually Jesus, right? Jesus in John chapter 2, he walks into the temple. He's flipping over tables. He's making a whip. He's doing all this stuff. And they go, Jesus, what's your what gives you the authority to do all these things? You act like you own this place, right? And Jesus says, well, guess what? I don't just own this place. I am this place. Tear down this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And John says he was talking about the temple of his body, right? Because, see, Jesus was where heaven and earth met. He is the place where heaven and earth meet. He is where God's mercy and forgiveness is known. He is the place of sacrifice and forgiveness. He is heaven come to earth. And actually, when Jesus was walking around doing miracles, he wasn't just doing cool parlor tricks. He was showing us what heaven was like or what heaven will be like. No disease, no suffering, no demons, perfection, right? He was bringing heaven to earth in himself and in his ministry. And then after Jesus ascended to heaven to be with God, to be where God is, he promised to send the Holy Spirit to be God's presence with us. Right? God is present with us in our very bodies. So the Holy Spirit is called the down payment of our future inheritance. And Jesus promises that he's preparing a place for us and will one day take us to his Father's home and will take us to be with him there forever. And then the Bible ends with Revelation 21 and 22, with heaven, not with us flying up to heaven, but with heaven coming down to earth. And God finally, finally dwelling with his people in a new heavens and a new earth. And the dwelling of place and God and man come together 
again. So the Bible begins and ends with God dwelling with his people on earth. Okay? The Bible begins with mankind in the presence of God, and that's exactly where the Bible ends. God dwelling with his people. That's what Revelation 21.3 says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them, be with them as their God. Heaven and earth finally meet. God is present with his people in a kingdom of peace forever. So what is heaven? It's where God lives. So let me ask you a, not a trick question, but it sounds like a trick question. Okay, so where do Christians go when they die? If I were to die today, where would my, my spirit go? To heaven, right? Okay, okay, exactly. So if a Christian were to die today, they would go to heaven to be with God. They would be with the Lord. But let me ask you this. Where do Christians go after they go to heaven? The new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're reading about in Revelation. Because going, flying off, you know, to be with God in heaven isn't the end of the story. The end of the story is resurrection to new life in a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells. Okay, that's what Revelation 21 and 22 is all about. That's about what we're going to look at next. So at the end of all things, we don't see us going up into heaven, okay? But we actually see heaven coming down. We don't fly off into space, you know, with this ethereal existence with harps and things like that. No, we see heaven coming down, God's presence coming to earth and renewing it. And so the final destination of believers is the new heavens and the new earth and God dwelling among his people. And this really isn't a, a totally new concept, okay? If you think about it, if you ask an Old Testament Israelite, who, who are you? I mean, a, a, a person who just went through the Red Sea, okay, and the exodus out of Egypt, they met God at Sinai, and they're on their way to Canaan, okay? And you said, hey, who are you? And they go, oh, we're God's people. We were slaves under a horrible taskmaster. But by, the, by our mediator, by the blood of the Lamb, we got out. And our enemies were all defeated, and, and we're liberated slaves, and we're on our way to a glorious inheritance, but we're not there yet. We're, we're not to the promised land yet. We're not to inheritance yet, but God is present among us, and he travels with us, and we're on our way to a glorious inheritance where we'll live in peace forever. Now, a Christian can say exactly the same thing. We're God's people. We're liberated slaves. We were slaves of a horrible taskmaster. But through the blood of the Lamb, we've been set free. And we're on our way to a glorious inheritance. Now, we're not there yet. Okay, this isn't our best life now, but it will be later. And we're not there yet. But one day, we will dwell in a perfect land, perfect peace forever. And so what is that glorious inheritance like? That's our next, that's our next point. What is heaven like? Now, when we refer to heaven in this sense, okay, we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. We're talking about the final destination of God's people. And that's in Revelation 21 and 22. What, what is heaven like? We're going to look at five features really quickly. I mean, at least I hope quickly. So, what are the five features? So, the first one is, it's a new creation, Look at Revelation 21.1. It's a new creation. It's a resurrected life in a new earth. It says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You see, our future isn't Donald Duck floating around on clouds and playing harps. It's, 
It's not a disembodied ethereal existence. It's not even a Bucky's bathroom, okay? It's a, it's, well, there might be Bucky's bathrooms there. I mean, there's going to be physical stuff. And why not Bucky's? But our future is a new resurrection life in a new creation. We'll have physical bodies in a physical world that is free from sin, perfect, harmonious, and endless joy forever. There's no wheelchairs in heaven. There's no cancer in heaven. There's no blindness. There's no disease. There's no pain. There's no anything. And it's not an ethereal consolation for the life we had, but an actual physical resurrection of the life we always wanted. All of your dreams that you had for this life will come true. If you think you're past your prime, if you think you missed out, if you think your life was on the downhill, the best is yet to come. All your dreams are going to come true. But what does it mean that it's a new earth, right? Well, I'll say this and I'll explain it. It'll be like the present earth, but even more real. Okay, even more real. Now, what, what could that possibly mean? Well, this, this is the best explanation I've come across anywhere. This is from C.S. Lewis. In the last battle, the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, which you should read once a year, uh, he portrays uh, the girl Lucy as she mourns the loss of Narnia, which was a magical, great magical world created by Aslan um, that she thinks has been forever destroyed. She's sad. Gosh, that world was so wonderful. It's gone now. Well, Jew the unicorn, Jewel the unicorn, mourns too, calling his beloved Narnia. It's the only world I've ever known. And although Lucy and her family and friends are on the threshold of Aslan's country, which is heaven in these books, she still looks back at Narnia and feels a profound loss. Okay? But as she gets deeper into Aslan's country, she notices something totally unexpected. What happens next, I believe, reflects the biblical revelation of the new earth. She goes, those hills, the, the nice woody ones and the, and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund, after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's, there's Mount Pier with his forked head, and there's the pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remembered. And, and they're, more, they're more, I don't know, more like the real thing, said Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled around, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we've all been blind. We're, we're only beginning to see where we are. From up here, I can see, I can see it all. Edinsmer and Beaver's Dam, the Great River and Care Paravel still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia's not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter? For Aslan told us older ones that we would never return to Narnia, and yet, yet here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you would never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been have been here and always will be here just as our own world England and all is only a shadow or a copy of something real in Aslan's world you need not mourn over Narnia Lucy all of the old Narnia that mattered all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door and of course it's different as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as a waking life is from a dream and the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that 
The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it until now. And the reason we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked like this. You see, that's what the new earth will be like. The things that are so beautiful and wonderful in this life are only beautiful because they look like what our ultimate inheritance will be. It will be, the new earth will be more like the real thing. It will be the earth that we always longed for. It will satisfy all hearts and be greater than we can ever ask or imagine. And so heaven, our final destination, is a new earth. What else? What else will it be? Well, number two. Number two, it's God's direct presence with humanity. It's God's direct presence with humanity. Look at verses 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Heaven comes down, and God finally dwells with his people. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the goal of the whole Bible. Heaven Heaven is fundamentally the environment of God's glory. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. Heaven is the environment of God's glory. Heaven is the atmosphere of the glory of God that heals everything and anything that it touches. It's exactly what we see here in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the healing and enlivening presence of God that comes down to us. And that's what makes heaven heavenly. God is there. And you see, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had to keep their distance from God's presence, lest they be consumed. Only the high priests could enter the most holy place once a year, most holy place once a year, and that was risky business, right? That was scary. It wasn't, it wasn't an easy thing. But we Christians who are indwelled by God's Holy Spirit, it says that we have confident access to approach God in prayer because of Christ's sacrifice. But see, even still, God is not directly dwelling among us. The Holy Spirit we have now is just a down payment of our future full inheritance, okay? But seeing God's new creation, that won't be the case. God will dwell directly among his people. Now, now what is that? What could that possibly mean, right? How can we, how is it that Christians can celebrate the presence of God in their midst now, yet, according to Revelation 21, God's presence with his people is still a future reality? How can that be? Well, this is the best way I've heard of explaining it. Most people have experienced in their lives a time when they are geographically separated from loved ones, right? You're, you're betrothed or your spouse or your children or your parents or, or your, your, your close friends. And there are many ways we can communicate and encourage and express our love and be present with others over a long distance, right? Through the phone, through the internet, um, Skype, FaceTime, video conferencing or email. And I'm sure some people still like send written letters through the mail, Right? And all of these means of communication and presence are wonderful, okay? But they are, no, they are no comparison to the real thing as seeing your loved ones face to face. 
greeting them and hugging them at the airport or the terminal or, or the bus station or seeing them pull into the driveway and get out of the car. I mean, it's great to talk on the phone, but it's so much better to see them face to face. I can remember the experience not too long ago of dropping off my entire family at the airport. And uh, they were going out of town for a week while I was going to be traveling for work for a week. And when we're driving, I held it together for the most part. But the moment I finally took my son out of his car seat, I just burst into tears. I'm just, tears are just streaming down my face. My son has no idea what's going on. He's two years old, you know. And, and sure, while, while we were separated, we, we talked on the phone and we FaceTimed as much as possible. And that was all great, but it was no substitute for actually being truly present together face to face. Nothing could substitute for that moment where we reunited in the airport and I, and I held my family again for that first time. You see, in God's new creation, his dwelling place will not be separated from mankind. God will dwell directly with his people. We will see him face to face. How amazing. I mean, heaven's going to be amazing. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be amazing because it's going to be a perfect earth and we're going to have perfect bodies to enjoy it forever. And there's every reason to believe that there's going to be animals, right? Because when God destroyed the water with the flood, he saved animals to bring to the new creation, right? He's going to do that again, probably. Okay, there's going to be animals, okay? Maybe even extinct animals like a Baronosaurus and stuff like that. Just think about it. Let your mind dwell on these things, okay? Um, and there's every reason to believe that there's going to be technology, right? I mean, think about it. If it's going to be a physical creation for forever, do you think there's going to be more or less technology than there is now in human development? you think there's going to be more or less human development than, than there is now? I mean, what do you think? Probably more. There's probably going to be the iPhone, like, 97, okay? Or, <laughs> I don't know. And, um, and there's probably going to be a lot of, if not most of the things we enjoyed in this life. How amazing will that be? That's going to be awesome. I mean, just, just thinking about it is mind-boggling. But the cornerstone, the chief joy, is that God will be present among his people. And Jonathan Edwards said this in a 1733 sermon. It says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. See, God will be the main attraction in heaven. Everything else we enjoy will be extensions of enjoying him. Just like, you know, if your wife makes you a wonderful meal and you eat it and you go, wow, this is great. She goes, hey, don't love the meal, love me. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, you love her by loving the things she created, right? Okay, you enjoy her by enjoying things she created. And we enjoy God also by enjoying the things he created. And all the technology and all the wonderful things and the new heavens and the new earth won't distract us from God, but will just cause us to appreciate him even more, right? And so going to heaven is going to be great because God will be there. That's the main attraction. And a lot of people imagine a heaven like without God. It'd be, like It'd be just as good if he wasn't there. But going to heaven without God in Jesus Christ would be like a bride going on her honeymoon without her husband. Right? <laughs> this is like boring. <laughs> it's kind of completely besides the point. So, but what else will heaven be? It will be a new creation. It will be God's direct presence with humanity. But also, thirdly, it will be 
the wiping away of all the pain, sorrow, and suffering of this present world. Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now this is one of the most powerful images of God in the entire Bible. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's almost no more intimate picture of tenderness in human existence than wiping away tears. When we were when we were children, maybe some of you are still children, when we were children and we would come home crying, our parents would dutifully come stoop down and they would wipe away our tears, right? But the, the thing is they would have to do it again and again. We'd come home crying again. And we'd come home crying again and they would wipe away our tears. But you see here, the all-powerful, holy, exalted ruler and creator of all things is pictured as intimately, tenderly, and permanently wiping away tears from the eyes of his people. And, and no, notice this. Not only will God bring complete and ultimate comfort to our pain, but the sources of our pain will no longer exist. Look at the end of verse 4 again. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Everything that causes tears and suffering and pain will have passed away with the old creation and have no place in the new creation. You see, God doesn't just remove sorrow from human existence, but he banishes the source of our pain and sorrow. Death and former things will have passed away. And God is making all things new. That, that is amazing. <laughs> no more disappointment. No more sorrow. No more letdowns. You know, there's this amazing spot in uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's in the final book. And uh, Samwise Gamgee encounters Gandalf, a character who he has not seen a lot. He's, he's thought he's dead this whole time. And so he encounters Gandalf for the first time. And Gandalf asks him how he's doing. He's like, hey, how are you, Sam? And Sam is just like in stunned disbelief. He's speechless for a minute. And then he says this. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Did you hear that question? He asked Gandalf, wait, you coming back from the dead. Does that mean everything sad is going to come untrue? The Christian answer to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to be made untrue. God's resurrecting and renewing power will make sad things not just forgotten, but actually untrue. What, is that, what could that possibly mean? I, I've, let, me, let me give you the best approximation of a real-world example. Okay? I have this horrible reoccurring dream where my father dies. My father is a professional skydiver in his spare time. And uh, in, 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 the, in the dreams, you guessed it, he dies in a, in a skydiving accident. And the dream just drags on and on. And I have to endure the heartache of, of taking care of the funeral arrangements and like sorting through photo albums. And there's all this horrible stuff. And it's so vivid and so, so convincing that I think it's real. And even after I wake up, you know, I still think it's real. But guess what? I mean, it's a heartbreaking dream. I'm crying the entire dream. But when I wake up, guess what? It becomes untrue. It's like waking up from a dream. It, it becomes untrue, okay? But here, here's the really amazing thing that struck me recently. Every time before I have that dream, I love my father. 
he is most important person in my family, you know, barring my wife and children. I mean, we're, we're so close. And before I have that dream, I love my dad. But after I have it, it's like I can't even look at him without crying. Right? Because the experience of losing him makes the reality of regaining him so much greater. Right? And that is what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. Okay, think, think of the, the tragic situation we read about in the news all too often. A small child gets kidnapped. Everyone's searching. Everyone's searching. And then the child is found dead. Okay. The child is kidnapped, searched for, and then, and then killed. What, what is the best case scenario outcome of a situation like that from an earthly perspective? What's the, what's the best thing that could happen? The perpetrator is caught. He's convicted, and he's sentenced to the maximum penalty under the law, right? That's the best thing that could happen, okay? But that doesn't take the pain away. That doesn't heal our wounds, and that doesn't give us our loved ones back, does it? But guess what? In the resurrection, and in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to get our loved ones back. They will rise from the dead, and it's, all of the pain is going to be taken away. All our wounds will be healed, and we're going to get them back. They will rise from the dead. Earthly justice can't bring people back from the dead, but Jesus Christ will. <laughs> we're going to get them back. And it's going to be like waking up from a dream. It's going to be like waking up from my dream. God, I thought you were dead. I know, I thought I was dead too. You know? That's the power of this promise. So what else... What else about heaven can we see in this passage? It will be a new creation. It will be God's direct presence with humanity. It will be the wiping away of all the pain, sorrow, and suffering in the present, present world. And fourthly, it will be safety, security, and protection. And that's what that long section in verses uh, 9 through 21 and verse 25 is all about. It talks about the, the see-through streets of gold and all the emeralds and the jewels and the pearly gates and all that stuff. It, it's showing you that there's untold wealth an unimaginable glory and unimaginable security to this city. God's people will be perfectly secure from all threats and all violence forever. It's going to be a kingdom of peace forever. I mean, the, the walls are 144 cubits thick. They're 1,400 miles tall. No enemy can disrupt this peace. No enemy can disrupt this kingdom forever. The city wall is so thick and high that no invading army could ever penetrate or scale it were they able to even gain a foothold on it. And standing guard at each gate is an angel, okay, which is more than a match for any invader. Okay? There's 12 mammoth stones interspersed between the gates to support the wall. And so John is not describing an eternally secure place as much as he's describing an eternally secure people. We're going to be safe forever. You don't have to worry about your loved ones. You don't have to worry about anything. This description of the city indicates unsurpassed wealth, security, and safety and protection forever but, but notice okay notice this despite the mammoth walls and the giant gates it says that the gates will always be open why is that because there's no enemies to be afraid of <laughs> threats don't exist and so this is in stark contrast to our present reality right with isis and disease ebola natural threats natural disasters i mean i worry about the kind of world that my son and my daughter are going to grow up in right it's horrifying you know but it's not going to be like that. There's going to be no more worrying about our safety or our loved ones in the new creation. So heaven's going to be safe and secure. But what else? It'll be a new creation. 
It will be God's direct presence with humanity. It will be the wiping away of all pain, sorrow, and suffering in the present world. It will be safety, security, and protection. And fifthly, and finally, here, it will be the restoration of Eden and the reversal of the fall. This is what's described in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they, will need no lamp of, uh, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Here, God's new creation, in which believers will one day eternally live, is described as a restored and perfected Eden. Now, all throughout this, there's all kinds of references to Genesis, Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, the river of life. Okay, that's in Genesis 2.10. The tree of life, that's in Genesis 3.22. And the removal of every cursed thing. The curse comes in Genesis 3.14-19. And, and you see, what it's saying here is that all that was lost when humanity originally rebelled will be restored. Everything that was lost will be regained, but even more so. Because the Bible begins on a little garden and ends in a huge and glorious global city. Right? It's, what is redeemed is greater than that which was destroyed. You see, when humanity rebelled against God, they were removed from the garden so they could not eat from the tree of life and live forever. But in God's newly created world without sin, people have full access to the tree of life. And humanity's rebellion resulted in a cursed and broken world that groans and longs for freedom from corruption. The world, paradise became a corrupt place filled with broken, sinful, selfish people who use, hurt, and oppress one another. Revelation declares that in God's new creation, everything cursed as a result of mankind's rebellion against God will be completely renewed. It's one of my favorite Christmas carols, Joy to the World, the third verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You see, that's what's happening here. As far as the curse is found, which is everywhere. The fingerprints are all over everything. Everything is, all the curse is going to be removed. The curse will be utterly abolished and Edenic paradise will be restored. This is really fascinating. Once whenever I was a kid, the school I went to, I think it was middle school, was broken into over the summer some teenagers broke into the school and they just spent hours trashing the place. They were smashing toilets, they were breaking windows, they were like kicking holes in walls and just doing and for like six hours they just had free reign trashing the school. In just a few hours they did thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of damage. Now how long do you think it took for them to repair what it took those kids just a few hours to destroy? It took months it took months. It took the rest of the summer and some of the school year to repair what was destroyed. It, it takes so much longer to fix than it does to destroy, right? You've experienced that. One split-second mistake can lead to months of repairs. I mean, and think of all the thousands of years we've, been, we've spent ruining this planet with violence and sin 
and pollution and crime and hatred. Think of all the years and millennia and thousands of years we spent ruining this planet. But when God comes, he'll heal it instantaneously. (laughs) He'll heal it instantaneously. John Calvin said, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. And finally, Revelation 22.5 concludes with, we will reign forever and ever. That's what human beings were created for. Humans were created to rule over the world for God. Right? That's what Adam and Eve were. It says, Adam and Eve have dominion, rule over the earth, spread and multiply, cover the earth. Right? Well, our destiny that we are made for, we will finally reign. We will finally rule with him. Here we see that humans will finally and fully be able to fulfill the purpose for which they were created, to represent God as his image in ruling creation for him. We will reign forever and ever. That's amazing. I mean, this is, this is almost too much to take in, isn't it? This is our future hope. But finally, I'll touch on this briefly. My final point, how, how, do, we, how do we get to heaven? How do we get there? I would be mistaken and guilty of malpractice if I didn't touch on this. How do we get to heaven? Notice that not everyone is going there. In Revelation 21.8, it says specifically there are some people who are excluded. So how do, how do we get in? How do we make this inheritance not just something we hear about and sounds exciting? How do we get there? Well, notice that all throughout this, that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. In fact, it's the only way he is mentioned in these chapters as the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. I mean, I thought this lamb stuff was like in the past, right? Why keep bringing it up, you know? Well, because Jesus being the sacrificial lamb for you in your place is the only way you'll ever gain access to heaven. You see, in the exodus out of Egypt, the angel of judgment, the death angel, was coming to kill all the firstborn. And the only way for your firstborn and for your family to be spared was to sacrifice a lamb in their place. You would kill the lamb, the you would say, I deserve to die. But this lamb is dying instead. And the innocent, the innocent animal would die in the guilty sinner's place. And they took the blood and they put it over the doorpost so that the judgment that was coming on everyone else would pass over them. The judgment that they deserved passed over them because of the blood of the lamb. If the lamb lives, you die. If the lamb dies, you live. And later on in the history of Israel, the sacrificial system was the same way. The people were guilty. They were plagued by sin. And an innocent, spotless lamb had to act as the substitute for their sin. Either you died or the lamb died. Either you paid for your sins or the lamb took your sins upon itself. You see, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world once and for all. He is our substitute. He lived the perfect life that you should have lived, that we all should have lived. He kept the perfect record that we all should have kept in God's eyes. And he died the death that we deserve to die for our sins. And if you believe in him, you can have all your sins forgiven. You can be adopted into God's family. You're not just made a citizen of the kingdom, you're made a child of the king. And you will be with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. So the only way to enter heaven is to have your sins forgiven. And the only way to have your sins forgiven is by trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. There's one more 
There's one more place in the Lord of the Rings I have to hit on before we close. I can't help it. Yeah. Frodo and Sam are on their perilous journey and they're this harrowing and horrible journey, journey to Mount Doom. And they've been traveling through Mordor for what seems like forever. It's horrible. It's dark. The air, you can barely breathe it. It's so depressing. They're traveling through this barren, horrible land that's just overwhelming. The darkness is terrible. It's dark. It's dreary. It's depressing. It sounds kind of like life sometimes, doesn't it? It's so overwhelming that Sam is beginning to think he's never going to be happy again. <laughs> I'm just never going to recover from this. It's overwhelming. And maybe, maybe you felt that way. Maybe you felt you never will be happy again. Maybe that's your life right now. But then he sees something. Sam sees something. Just when he's ready to give up, he sees something that changes his perspective. And here it is. He looks up, and it says, There, peeping among the cloud rack above the dark high tower up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. And there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. There's light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. I pray that this encourages you today. I pray that you find this to be an anchor for your soul in the storms and tumult of life. Because in the end, the shadow... It's only a passing thing. And there's light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together and for the glorious inheritance that you have prepared for us. Now, we don't deserve it. None of us have done anything to earn it, but it's only a free gift through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that it would be an anchor for our souls and that we would be different because of what we have learned this morning in your word. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.